3: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, Good evening, everyone, again, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. We're delighted to have as our guest author Jeff Dyer to talk about his latest book, The Last Days of Roger Federer. Jeff's going to be in conversation with poet, critic, and professor of English at UCL, Mark Ford. I'll talk for 40 to 45 minutes, after which there will be time for questions from you, the audience, but we'll also be taking questions from the rest of the universe where <laughs> people are watching online. Yeah. On practical matters, I need to point out your fire escapes, which are the doors there and the one you probably came in through at the back. Uh, Ask you to switch your mobile phones to silent and when you... Rush to the front of the shop to buy all these wonderful books we have on display. Make sure you don't kick your wine glasses over. And if you do, let us know straight away so we can um, sort it out. Um, With that out of the way, please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Jeff Dyer and Mark Ford. Thank you. Thank you all.
0: Um, yeah, it's great to be here talking to Jeff, who is, according to Zadie Smith, a national treasure. What, what's it like being a national treasure?
4: Well, I don't think, I, I've, I think uh, I, I've now moved up to international yeah. treasure, international treasure. <laughs> status,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, so you don't feel, th- I mean, she's suggesting your Englishness in that, and you had a book called Anglo-English say, Attitudes. Yeah, so yeah. So quite that, not sort of queer your pitch a bit, if well, you're international? Maybe.
4: Yeah, I like... Well, I like that, um, what was uh, Larry McMurtry's preferred way of describing himself, a sort of minor regional novelist. Okay. So I think there's, uh, there's got to be a, an element of the specific and the local if you're going to achieve universality.
0: So how has California changed your attitude to things?
4: Yeah, oh, goodness. Um, well, I mean, when I was living here in... London. Uh, I just longed to live in California and I would say to my wife that my whole life was a waste because I was here not in California where it was my destiny to be. So we've ended up in California and you know I mean time flies you know god we've been there seven years now and I realize it's when I was living here California was fulfilling that function it always has which is the idyllic ultimate elsewhere the ultimate promise and of course once you end up in california in a sense california the idea ceases to exist so it just it's just become the place where uh where i live and i fear i'm going to go to my grave as this perennial malcontent because now that i'm there i now look back on you know england which is really uh in shape in lots of ways, but at the same time, this I can feel the the mythic attraction of this Blakey Jerusalem, you know. <laughs> um, and as so, we're going to move back to England in three years, and we've got a lawyer dealing with various things. And they said, "What you must not do, because I've got so much experience of this. They said you must not make sure you have American citizenship, because apparently it's very common for people to come back to England to this." Blakey and Jerusalem, and then that they find that the reality <laughs> is, uh, shall we say, often at variance with that. So I don't know. God, I'm just here. I'm 64 years old and still just drifting. Well, drifting. I mean, um, the book's got lots of
0: drift <laughs> in it, but it's also got more of a structure, or quite a sort of deliberately foregrounded structure, uh, perhaps more so than your previous books, most of which I've read. With these three parts with 60 segments in each mm. part, it looks a bit like Dante, but that's in uh, it's got three parts. Oh, that's we'll the only. certainly
4: be quoting that on the paperback, Mark. That, <laughs> yeah. That's
0: that's the main similarity with Dante. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, <Manor. laughs> what, um, sort of how did that form evolve?
4: Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I think if if I were asked to boast about what my great strength as a writer is i would say it's structure i think they've all got the ones that appear unstructured have really great this i mean yeah so i mean i know and there's been a number of things of people saying it's just a chaotic rag bag of stuff but yeah i would i would be happy to talk about the structure and your um so i mean uh, the cent. one of the central as, as i'm sure you Sort of heard that you know that Roger Be- Roger Federer barely gets a mention, and probably the single most important figure in the book is probably Nietzsche. Mm. I think there's probably more space devoted to him than anybody else, and mm. I discussed that idea of the eternal recurrence. And as I, uh, I wanted to as as I as the material mounted up, I wanted to find some kind of structure that was um, appropriate to what I was discussing, and I started to think in terms of these loops. Mm, mm. Because, of course, the eternal recurrence, Mm -hmm. it goes round and round. And there's a section where I talk about that great piece of music that some of you will be familiar with, William Basinski's disintegration loops. And at one point, I was going to have this subtitle, three disintegration Mm. loops. Anyway, so I thought I'd just have these... Sort of loops of things. And then I thought, you yeah, it's good to have sections of, if each loop is 60, because I, you know, 60, it's, a, it's a, a unit of measurement. It's either 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, this kind of thing. So I, and um, what happens is that the, there is a sort of narrative, there's a progression. Mm. But at the same time, things are often left suspended, and things will be introduced, and you think, God, why on earth is he talking about Gillian Welch here, for example? And then, you know, we don't hear anything more about her until we end up in Turin, where, of course, Nietzsche famously spent his last sane days. And then, you know, Gillian Welch is, is uh, she's reintroduced with a, with a sort of with 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 a, with a purpose. Anyway, so the the loop thing is there, but then something additional goes on, which I'm really, I think it's worth mentioning. I say very early on in the book that the best filmic representation of the idea of the eternal recurrence is probably that Mm 24-hour Christian Markle Mm -hmm. film, The Clock. Because it's just this, you know, if there was a place where they had it on permanently, it would just be this one-day loop over and over. Uh, twenty four hours eighty six thousand four hundred seconds i just sort of i mentioned that at the beginning and then in the postscript to the ep, the uh the sort of um epilogue to to the book, which I added precisely because Nietzsche was such an insane adder of postscripts and epilogues to his books. I just talk about the way that uh, this, I say this book, which is uh, you know exactly 86,400 words, and it is. And I liked the idea that the book would have the same number as, of words as there are seconds in the day, mm. um, just as a way of further sort of tightening the, the, mm-hmm. the, um, the um, connection between the, the content of the book and, and the form. that it's it's achieved. That is quite an Olympian kind of style. Well, except, yes, except it's not because I really don't like those uh, Olympian kind of games which are always, they always have a quality of the laboratory experiment, Uh uh, sort of the white lab coat about them. Whereas I felt this was something that emerged from the material Uh rather than being imposed on it. Although at a certain point, of course, I was, you know, having to, it became... Very, very tricky because it was okay when it was as a Word document and there was lots of back Uh and uh forth with the copy editors. But then once we went to the proof stage, which meant I was seeing proofs on Adobe, whatever it is, there's no word count on Adobe. So that was really, then I was getting into some quite uh, confusing, I wouldn't say maths, but let's say arithmetic You've cut the most used. <laughs> I mean, really, it was just, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's just, so I liked You I, like that. I liked yeah. that, and it's been a huge source of disappointment to me that not a single review so far has said, oh, oh you know, 86,400 seconds, 86,400 words, because I thought that was rather clever. Um, <laughs> um you
0: say Federer's not mentioned much, but he is in the title, so yeah, uh, so, yeah he's, he, there, he's, in the he's there in the title. I should say, Jeff and I used to play tennis on a fairly regular basis, mm. and he, you did beat me once, didn't you? Well, oh, once? come on, Mark. Oh, sorry, I mean, Jeff. Really? Uh, it's <laughs> so, <laughs> so low to wash your essentially already
4: clean linen in public like but, that.
0: But um, uh, there is something... And you do catch it in the book, really poignant about the last days of a sportsperson, particularly mm. a, a great sportsman yeah. like Federer. What is it that's different about Federer that made you want to put him in the title? How yes. do you feel when you see him on court? What, what, what is it about yeah. Roger?
4: Well, this was something I did write about a few years ago that, um, I guess it was about, f- God, time flies, doesn't it? Maybe, fi- I'd always loved Roger the way we all love Roger. And then about four years ago, it, I realised something extraordinary had happened, that I loved Roger even more than I used to. And I think it's because we got a sense then of how fortunate we were to be seeing him play. And I also liked the way that, I mean, you know, Bjorn Borg famously retired when he was so young and he said to John McEnroe, whether sincerely or not, you know, that you're either number one or you're nothing. And that was sort of crazy. I liked, in the book, I talk about Tim Henman's much more balanced attitude to it when, you know, uh, he was being criticised by somebody. Henman was number four in the world and he said, you know, I was criticised by this guy who's not not even number four in the bank where he works. (laughs) You know, so anyway, so it was, there was this phase, you'll remember, when Roger would beat everybody in the early rounds and then he'd invariably be beaten by Djokovic, Mm. the Balkan wall of Djokovic's defence or the swirl of uh, Nadal. And, you know, it was you know, he sort of came to terms with this because he liked playing tennis. Mm. Not only did he like playing tennis, he loved every aspect of being on the tour, flying around the world in his private jet, staying in these lovely hotels, being aware of just how loved he was by everybody. And he's just kept, you know, that twilight period, he seemed to, have come to terms with not winning, and then there was that extraordinary thing in 2017, I guess it was, when you know he comes back from injury and wins three more Grand yeah. Slams, yeah. and that was a year when I actually saw him play quite a bit, and you know it was it you know there I was seeing it, but there was another moment as well. So uh, I, my friend and I got press passes for Indian Wells and um, the tournament in California. And as you'll know, that compared with, say, Nadal or Alcaraz, I mean, Roger isn't particularly sort of pumped up. He's got rather sort of... I was going to say he's got rather scrawny arms, but then I realised there might be all sorts of titters from the audience as I... You know, who am I to say somebody's got scrawny arms? Anyway, so we go to the press conference. My friend who's in his 50s and I was in my 60s by then. And Roger enters the room you know and my friend and i both went oh, you know cuz he was like this greek god you know and it was just uh, just to be in his sort of presence and just the sort of in addition there was the to the way he played which was i think I, I suppose there's this thing it's a it's a very rare thing in sport for a brief while while when roger was winning there was this lovely satisfaction of feeling that The most efficient way to play, because he was winning Grand Slams, was also the most aesthetically pleasing. And so often those two things are at odds, and it's lovely when for a little while they're not. I mean, if we think of, you know, do you remember when Kevin Keegan was managing uh, Newcastle? And it was great fun watching that, it was glorious, but you felt that his... You know, buccaneering style meant they were destined to lose ultimately to 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 Man United. So it was there was a lovely feeling of completeness when uh, when, when we were watching Roger. And now that he's you know pretty well retired, I'm not sure that my I, I feel that my interest in tennis will mm. will never again be quite as intense as it was. There was
0: a, there's a fragility to his both backhand and forehand on games mm. as well, which is. A, bizarre I mean it doesn't happen with Djokovic he gets them all back but that fragility it is very sort of painful to watch yes. when he goes off the boil
4: yeah but it's also the fragility is built into that thing that we all love so much the one single-handed yeah. backhand so I have that uh simple thing that uh you know I'll all well it's changed I was going to say I'll always support that whoever has a single-handed backhand but actually then I came to hate Sissipas so much for that extended bathroom break against Murray, you know, um, and uh, I've changed my tune somewhat. And then, actually then, so, yeah, and then, you know, for that reason, the truth is, I mean, I promise you, it's not me being sexist, but I had really little interest in women's tennis because the single-handed backhand is, has actually been extinct in, in women's tennis since, uh, uh, Justine and and then uh, retired, but then that kind of thing, which I think we were all caught up in, you know, that extraordinary thing at the U.S. Open, you know, when uh, Emma Raducanu was was winning, and then you know I just had this kind of incredible thing where, just for a brief period, I wasn't missing Roger anymore. Ah, uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, she hasn't won much since. Uh, no, but, I But mean, I mean there's an interesting difference between lateness and sports people who hit mm-hmm. their peaks in their 30s and and, and yeah. Who end whose careers often end in their thirties, and writers aren't, Do you feel lucky to be a writer, hitting your stride in your sixties?
4: Well, to be still <laughs> soldering on in my sixties, <laughs> yes. But of course, you're right, and um, I mean there is a there is a kind of link with uh, with Nietzsche here, actually, which uh, which I'll stress now because I think I didn't mention it enough in the the book. I mean, so I talk about the way that you know. Um, you know uh, Boris Becker. We all think of him as you know. We thought of him as a slightly ridiculous figure, and then tonight, you know, there were, you know there he is. Maybe he's live streaming this event, you know, in his jail cell wherever he is, you know. And it's uh but it's a uh, you know he's having a shittier night than any of us here. Uh, but you know uh, you know you think of that first moment when Nietzsche announces the eternal recurrence, when he says, this life, you'll have to lead it over and over again throughout all eternity. And he says, if somebody said this to you, and you think of all the misery in your life, wouldn't you say, oh my God, that's so terrible. And then he says famously, but has there ever been a moment in your life so great that you would say to this demon who says this to you, you're a God and I've never heard anything more divine. Okay, well, so, you know, Boris Becker has had moments like that, you know, when he was very, very young, as a teenager, winning Wimbledon. Those are moments of godlike greatness and happiness, which are way in excess of anything we're going to experience. And similarly, I mean, somebody who achieved an even higher level of greatness, uh, you know, Diego Maradona. Imagine that, winning the World Cup for your country, sort of simul- uh, single-handedly. And so there's that kind of thing there, and it's a question of whether those those moments of almost un- inconceivable mm. greatness can sustain you for, through the uh, mm. ludicrous years of being a, allegedly a sort of cultural attache for the Democratic Republic of Congo <laughs> and then ending up in, in, in jail you know? yeah. uh, and it it does happen for writers yeah. too. you know I talk about Kerouac and the way that mm. uh, you know he became a kind of drunken buffoon, but uh, I feel that, well I guess the, the larger point I think is that the value of a life really can't be assessed chronologically right. and for me the kind of the, the daring and the wager and the triumph of Kerouac with On the Road meant that it doesn't really matter that actually he became this kind of you know drunken idiot on talk shows.
0: I was struck by the pain in quite a lot of your n- narratives, little mm. vignettes, pain Kerouac, the pain that Andy Murray is talking about in that last that press Mm -hmm. conference in in Sydney. Yes. Yeah.
4: Uh, Oh, yeah. Yes,
0: certainly. And your own tennis is bedevilled by pain these days, or?
4: Well, I mean, uh, well, uh, those of you who uh, have already read the book and are feeling that you're you're now bereft of uh, you know anything, you'll be pleased to know that there's this week in the New Statesman I publish an update on my. (laughs) Uh, 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 an update about my elbow surgery. I I sent Mark this X-rated photograph of my uh, my elbow just after surgery. Anyway, so yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's lots of this going on. But that is the
0: thing of why did you get interested in lateness? I mean, was it your own mm. kind of increasing years or was it that you literally found late Wagner, uh, late... Turner, mm. late Nietzsche is somehow embodying something that you were connecting with more than you had before.
4: Well, I would make a, a distinction, Mark, uh, between uh, lateness and lastness. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, a lot of work has been done on late style, you oh. know, and it, the starting point typically is the Adorno Said, essay, yeah. whatever it's called, style, in uh, late style in Beethoven, which then Said... Mm-hmm. sort of picks up on. And in, in Beethoven's case, you know, his last works are his, his late and last are synonymous, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we can think of people whose last works come in the sort of middle phase mm-hmm. of what, you know, that th- comes early on. I mean, I talk about Coltrane or Gary Winogrand, mm-hmm. they die suddenly, but they're, they're clearly not at, the, at a late phase in their work. It's just chopped off. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we can think of lots of lots of examples of writers whose last book is also their first book. So lastness mm-hmm. is, uh, it sometimes coincides with late, but it's not always. And I was interested in these things of, uh, of lastness, mm-hmm. which overlaps with lateness, because of course certain things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's also, also talking about one's uh, not just People's active producing careers, but one's appreciation of, of, of things as one as yeah. one ages. So, you know. So for me, I got seriously into listening to Beethoven's late quartets. You know, at this late stage in my life. But um, uh, other things, I've been uh, I I've been surprised by the way that my ability to appreciate them, I think, has actually diminished <laughs> with, with age. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, for, for, for performers, it's slightly different as well, isn't it? You depend upon the body. I mean, there's mm. sports people, but there's also musicians. You talk yeah. quite a bit about late Dylan. Mm. Um, yeah. And I probably have a higher estimate of late Dylan than you do. Though you, When you, you saw him in Houston and you felt... Uh, Austin. Austin, Texas. Yeah. You felt it, it wasn't a great experience. Oh,
4: no, it, it certainly... <laughs> it, it definitely wasn't. It was... A, I mean, that was a last experience for me, and I said, never again... Mm. And well, it's this strange thing with Dylan, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, it's, you know, nobody is greater, you know. It's we just, we agreed that. Yeah, I mean, it's just extraordinary. And then, you know, people—he still tours, and I don't know, I don't know why, since he doesn't seem doesn't seem to afford him any real satisfaction. And then, you know, quite a lot of the time, you'll encounter people if i don't know if i bet many people in this room have seen dylan in the last 10 years and typically everyone says it was either awful or disappointing but then weirdly you'll hear of some gig somewhere on Mm. this tour and people will say god it was amazing he almost smiled and the voice is somehow magically restored for one night only well often only one song Oh on right, well, okay, <laughs> uh, and you feel that in a Nietzschean way is all redeeming, do you? That well, I yeah,
0: I used to sort of buy those bootlegs, and you'd get a sort of double bootleg, yeah, with forty songs on it, and one of them would be worth would be listening okay. to. Yeah, twenty-five quid well spent. Uh, right,
4: well, you see, I I just don't believe it. I don't believe you, as uh, uh-huh. as uh, you know, to quote that line, because the voice is so shot. And you know, it's funny because I have this kind of interest. I mean, I have this. Idea that maybe I mean it's something. God, I know it's just I know one shouldn't quote Bono, but um, (laughs) you know um, he was being interviewed in a documentary about Pavarotti in his last years, Mm. by which time his voice was in decline. And Bono said, "You know, people who talk about his decline, you know, you know, what are they doing? You know, they they don't. It's not just about the technical thing." He said, "You know, there's a sort of richer." something richer about understanding going on. Mm. And, you know, I'm drawn to the idea of, you know, callous after the voice is not so good, and Billie Holiday, all this kind of thing. So I, I, I'm kind of quite attracted to the idea of debility enabling you to access something higher than you could when you were in the greatest technical shape. Mm. But in Dylan's case, I mean, I find the music kind of dull and uh, it just doesn't do anything for me except... You know, and uh, yeah, none of those late albums have done it for me, except I found, and this is something, again, I mentioned in the epilogue, you know, I found myself just listening maybe a hundred times to that song uh, Key West. Key West is good. Yeah. Have you You tried Working Man's Blues? Have you tried Working Man's Blues? I've given a cursory listen to, uh, um, but but then that song, Key West, it just got me back into that Mm. thing of that Dylan Mm. kind of, just that weird trance that a Dylan song can yeah. in, can induce, even though, like all Dylan songs, it's got some absolutely preposterous lines in it.
0: Mm, mm, mm.
4: There's a lot about poetry in the book.
0: Did you did you, ever, did you write poetry as a young person? Never, never,
4: no. So, but
0: you learned a lot of poetry off by heart. Yes, yes,
4: I did, and that yeah. stayed with you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Could you give us some?
4: Well, I could, <laughs> but uh, you know, this is my gig. I'm not going to waste my no. time. Quoting Tennyson or Wordsworth, but, but I could. so those are the people Tennyson, Wordsworth, oh, all of them, Larkin, know, Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah, you know. You
0: mentioned late Larkin. Late Larkin is is a slightly problematic case, isn't he?
4: Well, in that there isn't much. You oh. know, there's love again, wanking yes. at ten past three, and that's which his girlfriend thought was a misprint for waking. <laughs> <at ten> <laughs> f- <laughs> yeah. Well, there's lots of that. You know, they tuck you up, your mum and dad. <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, it's not actually it's not so much. I mean, Larkin, late Larkin is some is an e- example of somebody who's. Just uh, you know, um, I quote that lovely line of um, Carol Ann Duffy, her that wonderful poem about Auden. You know, when she says, "When the words have gone away, there's nothing left to say." Um, but of course, many people find a way of keep keeping saying mm. it. Whereas Larkin just gave up and just concentrated on. What I don't know, it's like sending smutty letters to oh, drink the Amis and drinking, drinking yeah, yeah, you know, oh, and just yeah, yeah. and thinking in a state of ever increasing terror of yeah. uh, of, of, of dying. And then one great amazing poem comes out of that, yeah, or Obard or, yeah, or, yeah. yeah, yes, yeah. And then uh, I do find the letters screamingly funny, yeah, yeah, but it's uh, yeah, I mean, he's I think for whatever reason you know Larkin um um for I mean for loads of reasons just is not able to write poems at all and it also coincides with the other thing I mean Larkin's ability to appreciate things shrinks mm. so so radically doesn't it mm. yeah yeah you were going to read something
0: for oh, us oh well I could mean could
4: you do that now yeah yeah but i i worry this might bring things to a premature close. I no, mean, no, no,
0: I will do some close reading afterwards. Okay.
4: <laughs> well, let's read okay. this passage because it's short and I think it's to the to the point. And and I hope that this will have an impact on your own live performances, yeah, yeah. Mark. That Which you're what not, page are we on? 102. Okay. At any poetry reading, <laughs> however enjoyable, the words we most look forward to hearing are always the same. I'll read two more poems. The words we truly long for are, I'll read one more poem, but two seems to be the conventionally agreed minimum. It's lovely hearing this. You can feel a sigh of relief passing through the audience, especially if the previous couple of poems have been precedent-setting sonnets, clocking in at under a minute each. After long months in the sea of poetry, the shout has gone up from the crow's nest. Land! We're almost there, we've made it, can practically taste the scurvy-healing lager being poured in a bar afterwards. But then these two last poems turn out to be the opposite of the sonnets that had served as a double false dawn before the concluding multi-part epics, the felt duration of each is twice as long as the ring and the book. Which raises a question. Why did we come if, while being here, we would end up being so preoccupied by no longer being here? Could it be that our deepest desire is for everything to be over with? We want encores, value for money, bang for our buck, but however vigorously we've been clapping and clamouring for more, there is invariably a sense of relief when it becomes clear that the band, despite our collective imploring, are not coming back, that the house lights have flicked on bringing the last residue of applause to an immediate, slightly impolite halt, and that we can apply ourselves single-mindedly to getting a good place in the stampede for the exits. Beneath it all, writes Larkin, desire of oblivion runs. And is that not true of novelists? When they read from their work. Oh well, they don't. They don't. Uh, they don't say. I'll just read two yeah. more chapters. Yeah. Um, so there's. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's. Uh, it really is. Uh, do you say that yourself?
0: No. Art? Well, I did give a, a reading which I persuaded my daughter to come to, and the, one of the poets I was read, read with did say, "I will just read." And my daughter's face lighted up. Three more poems. Oh, she said, f- and then her face <laughs> fell. Yes, I yeah. saw despair. <laughs> Uh, uh, as she kind of hunkered mm. down for another ten minutes. So yes, um, absolutely, the end. But even at a great jazz concert, do you not look forward to the end?
4: Yes, of course. And it's the same with with books, isn't it? You know, you you know, you're reading a whopping great Dickens book. You say, oh, this is so great. I never want it to end. And then you look to see. You know, oh, God, still 300 pages of <laughs> Dombey and Son to... Uh, <laughs> well, he to was bored to... even by his own endings. I mean, he, you, could, you could tell he was
0: bored by the, yeah, book, by the yeah. time he got to the end of um, them. So, and,
4: uh, yes, and then things like... I, I mean, I talk about films and, you know, I think we're all familiar with this, the way that with thrillers you can pretty routinely walk out 15 minutes before the end because then it's just all killing and action and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that's just a, that's just a bore. It's one of the great things for me, one of the great revelations in my life when I realised in films, punch-ups are always a total bore. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah.
4: um, I was touched through this book, though, by your willingness
0: to embrace new things that you hadn't seen. In a mm-hmm. way, I felt it... you're someone who's always open to films like Colonel Blimp, which oddly you hadn't seen, and then you saw it, and you were knocked out by it. And we do end up a little bit sort of in a shell, don't we, as we get older in terms of our artistic taste. but uh, you're trying to buck that trend.
4: Well, I mean, obviously it's this, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it would have been, it was, I mean, uh, probably the only person in the uh, room who hadn't seen uh, Colonel Blimp and you know thank God I did see it because I realized that I'd been walking around for all these years feeling like a complete person but I wasn't because I had this huge blimp shaped hole in in, in in me and it had a an overwhelming Im- impact on me and I think it's well there's two things going on here one I mean I used to write so many I used to spend so much time and was so happy just reading new books because I was reviewing a lot of stuff. So it was always, you know, the excitement of the the just published or the just about to be published. And then I got less interested in writing reviews for all sorts of reasons, partly because I realized I w- wanted to not be so addicted to the new and I wanted to go back and read Edith Wharton. You know, let's say I hadn't read and, you know, and of course that was absolutely wonderful. So I broke my addiction to to than you, but I think there's, there's that. But then there's also a really important thing, which is much more difficult to achieve as you get older, but it's absolutely essential. Uh, and I think so many writers have suffered from not doing it, which is that you've got to, got to, got to read, keep reading people younger than mm-hmm. you. So it's easy for somebody of my age to read Edith Wharton. You know, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's sort of you could say it's on the way to dotage. Mm-hmm. It's a much, well, and that's not to diminish Edith Wharton, but it's much more difficult to, to sort of think, oh yeah, God, actually I've got to read people who are half my age. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think that's, yeah, I think that's. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I've got this head of department at, where I teach at USC, and he's, he's the opposite of Philip Larkin. He's so fully engaged with everything. And he's sort of, for, you know, he's, I mean, he's a Dylan nut. He really is mm-hmm. forever young. and <laughs> For, for everything is it keeps him really, really youthful. And I want to... I can see the attraction of that. of that. I mean, I, I can see the how important it is to live like that. But being English, of course, I've got this... I can feel this huge municipal gravity of the other, Larkin, mm. sort of, uh, you know... Well, Lawrence kicks against
0: that, though, doesn't he? I mean, he denies... On his deathbed, he says he's got a little problem with his lungs, doesn't he? Yeah,
4: yeah. but bear in mind, Lawrence is only, you know, he's on his deathbed at the age of 44, mm. you know, which is coincidentally, if I remembered it, you know, that's also the age at which, you know, pretty much Nietzsche goes, goes nuts. Nietzsche then, as you all know, lives on for another 10 years, being taken care of by his sister, mm-hmm. who, he, you know, he loathed so much. He said that the idea of meeting his sister again was the most frightening aspect of the eternal recurrence. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so how has your own style changed, oh, would you say? As you're, oh, you. If you're a late, if you think of yeah. yourself as not late, but all, certainly not last, but kind of moving
4: into a more mature yeah, phase. Yeah, that's a nice question. Well, I mean, in many ways, I really do think... Uh, 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 when I was, I was really into jazz... As you know, listening to it, and then I got into house and techno. So you could say that I immatured with age, and I think, in a way, that something similar has happened with the the writing. In that I, I mean, I, it's okay to boast at your own event, isn't it? I mean, I just feel I'm so much funnier as a writer now uh, than than I was at the beginning, and I think because at the beginning of my writing life, I was so. Uh, so under the influence, in a good way, of John Ber- of John Berger. Mm-hmm. And it took me quite a while for my own sort of voice to emerge from that. And my own voice is a sort of mixture of, you know, serious stuff, because I don't just want to be a comic writer. But that kind of... I feel the, the moving, flicking between serious and joking has become much easier. And th- then I think that the hallmark of my own late style is the... Com- the almost complete obliteration of the distinction between serious and funny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I really, uh, yeah, I've mm-hmm. come to 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 like that. Uh, yeah, I, I feel very. Yeah, I, that's what I, I feel. I'm much funnier now. That's the one thing that I I'm, I'm certain of. And that, and then there's the downside to it that I feel. That, and this is all one. All one is really doing is just surfing the actuarial wave so I think I was when I was younger I was a much more lyrical writer I think there's lots of lyricism in but beautiful and mm-hmm, the color yeah, of memory yeah. mm-hmm. and of course that's that's pretty well uh, that's that tap is running dry but mm-hmm. how could it not I mean it's mm-hmm. how many how many how many poets or writers remain kind of lyrical in their in their 60s and your late style at tennis is that Oh, that's just the, 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 that's just a complete dog's dinner uh, uh, of style, yeah, yeah, of um, yeah. You
0: see, never took coaching, did you? You never had a.
4: No, I
0: just didn't. I mean, I,
4: I mean, partly, partly. Jeff has a
0: backhand which is like no others.
4: It's, uh, it's you know, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's not a thing of beauty, and it's, uh, it was partly out of just God, I partly out of just being so tight with money but also I just what I really like Mark as you know I, I like just playing with my friends yeah. and I love doing that and I just never really liked I've I've had some lessons but I just never liked yeah. it really I never had the discipline for, for that whereas the, the lovely thing about writing I mean it's so with tennis you have to do these drills and stuff you know and, and whereas writing you sort of you're you're learning it as you're doing it you know, so it's. Uh, that, that's, but you that's teach really, writing now, don't you? So yes, but like, of course, like all, like a typically boring mid-sixties person. You know, all I teach them writing. It just means I'm sort of saying, you know, it's just all about reading. You yeah. know, it's just you know, because of course, in you know, it's just incredible how yeah, uh, reading and getting them to doing this thing, which is just so horrendous to them. It just you know, getting them to memorize, to learn poetry off by heart, which Mm -hmm. then they they actually, it turns out, they really love doing, Mm -hmm. even though they can't see any reason why you would, given that you can get it all on your phone. Mm
2: -hmm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Let's have some questions from the floor or from the
3: ether. Um, floor first, because I haven't anything from the ether okay yeah oh, <laughs> what's wrong with Not the ether
4: yet. today Hi, I was interested uh with your experience now working in America i'm working with mm-hmm.
3: American students um, How you define young American writing styles, so if there's anything that you're picking up on that you feel is kind of oh. significantly different from what's going on here or significantly interesting
4: yeah um do you know? Perhaps I wouldn't really uh, accept that. I guess what I what I was particularly conscious of, maybe, maybe five years ago. So maybe it subsided. Is that the real influence of Thomas Bernhard as a as a as a comic writer? Really, and there's so much, so many books where you can really feel that Bernhardian thing. I noticed, and I guess the other thing, which maybe it's. I don't know about its relationship to how it's different to Britain, but, you know, this kind of thing which I've been doing for a while, these genre-defying things, now this kind of, everybody wants to do these hybrid uh, books. And all the, whenever I teach my classes, and all any of the students ever say to me, uh, because she takes teachers at the same place is Maggie Nelson was saying and it's all just Maggie this Maggie that so there's that they really they like this idea of that kind of essayistic uh, uh, writing Uh, and I feel that now that kind of thing of this hybrid stuff there is a kind of formula for it it's not quite got to the point where the software is available for free download but uh, yeah there's a lot of that about and I'm struck by the way that how often i kind of uh, I'll read something about a book that's a hybrid one of the whatever, and it seems a a bit formulaic, and also it's just uh, it's often kind of earnest, um, and yeah, there's a lot of earnestness now, and you know, uh, Nietzsche is so full of great things, but did he ever say anything greater than his observation when he says uh, earnestness? Ah, the sure sign of a slow mind. I mean, that is, uh, you know, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Thank you for kicking things off like that.
1: Um, I fear this may be a slightly unoriginal question, but now you have a significant body of work to look Mm. back on. Do you have a favourite of your own, your works? And if so, has that favourite changed over the years?
4: Oh, yeah. Well, do you know... um, I kind of have a fondness for many of them really, but I think um I think the missing of the psalm is important for me because it was the first of these uh you know, it was a real sort of mix of essayistic and all this kind of stuff. Uh and it was yeah, I, I that, that means a lot to me. And then also, I mean it was uh, that book I did about Gary Winogrand a few years ago. That really was that was important for me a, as well. Partly because it was a beautiful object. It was. I mean, it was, I don't think it, it, it even exists anymore. It was. Uh, yeah, but it was. Yeah, that was. That they they mean a lot to me. Um, but um, but also this this book. I really, as my friend in Ireland, Rob. Doyle said of this, but he said, God, you really threw the kitchen sink at this one, didn't you? So I think at this moment, this, of course, has a, a special place in my affections because it's the most up-to-date sort of dispatch or bulletin about uh, what's going on. And yeah, yeah, I think. I th- and I also, I, well, I, could I say something else about uh, what, one of the influences on it? Uh when I was starting to think about reading, doing this book, I read Adam Zagajewski's book, Slight Exaggeration. Uh, and it's his, it's a, have you read that, Mark? Mm-hmm. So he's a, you know, I mean, he's I dead he's a now, but sort of famous poet. But he did this book, which was, didn't have any unifying subject. And he was, wasn't, I wasn't sure whether did these begin as diary entries or, um, you know, essays that he'd written. And it was just this thing. You didn't know what you were reading, and it was united by a just this unwavering commitment to the life of the mind. And there were certain preoccupations he kept coming back to, Bach, religion, and and, and so forth. But I liked this idea of the book being... You know, really, just a container of the author's consciousness. That there's the notional subge- there's the notional subject, but the key thing is, yes, just the, the authorial consciousness, and that was a, uh, yeah. So that's why I think this is uppermost in my mind. Yeah. Got
3: one from the one from the ether. If okay. Um, Alice Jane asks: um, Many writers seem to have doubts about the validity of writing as a way to spend a life perhaps thinking they should be doing something more directly socially useful. You never seem plagued by such doubts. <laughs> <laughs> no,
4: I, I I don't, although, goodness knows, I mean, I'm really, you know, I'm really grateful for everybody who drives a bus and does things like that. But uh, I feel that the writing life has given me a sort of real uh, gr- uh, a fantastic life, which has made, uh, uh, which has sort of made the most of my, it's, a, yeah, it's, it's been, yeah, no, I, I don't have any uh, qualms about that, even though that's, I'm in danger of sounding rather solipsistic, I, I, I fear.
3: Um, there's actually a corollary or a supplementary question also from Alice James. I'm not sure if it connects. Do you think that you and Rachel Cusk should do an event together about D.H. Lawrence?
4: Well, uh, possibly, but um, I guess so. It's funny how, I mean, even since we di- I did that event with Francis Wilson, you know, that there's, God, there's another, there's a lot. Lawrence is really, at long last, having a, a sort of revival. And, um, you know, it's interesting. There's all these books coming out about Lawrence by women. I think that's partly... I, I feel sure of this it's partly to try to uh, make good the uh, you know the the, uh, the the kicking that Kate Millett uh, gave him but uh, yeah I'm, I'm aware of how important Lawrence is to uh, to Rachel Cusk
3: um, you were talking earlier about um reading and writers younger than you and mm. um, you just mentioned Rob Doyle and I'm wondering who else you're reading who's half your age
4: Oh, of course, my mind has now gone completely, uh, completely blank. Uh, Well, I don't know if she's half my age, but I'm just about to read the new Otessa Mosfeg, who I think is amazing, actually. And I think she's so... uh, It's so far out, what she does, and so disturbing. Although not Eileen, that was just a... I mean, I share Otessa Mosfeg's own low opinion of of that book. But I think the year of... uh, Rest and relaxation, and um, the stories are, are fantastic. That's, that's the, she's the person that's uppermost in, in my mind, I think. Maybe she's not half my age. Oh, yeah. it's all going on in the corner here.
2: Yeah. Um, you mentioned Brzezinski's disintegration loops. Yeah. Um, and I'd just be really interested to hear how they affected you or how, what you thought of the whole concept, and more specifically, how if the same sort of thing you think is possible in literature, maybe in poetry, or whether this is Ooh, something that music can do that God. literature can't really?
4: Well, uh, shall I I guess I should just say, because I guess it's not such a well-known piece of music. So there's this... Um, it's a, uh, yeah. So it's these disintegration loops. So what Bazinski was doing, if I remember correctly, he was transferring some loops that he'd made of sort of music, really, from... Uh, tape to digital, is this right? And then as it was going through the tape head, passing through the tape head, he found that because it was old magnetic tape, it was slightly deteriorating. And what becomes very interesting, he, so he extends, it's only a loop of about 10 seconds, I think. But he it, each, P, each loop la- ends up lasting an hour. And it gradually disintegrates Uh, It's the record of its own disintegration over this extended period of time, so from one moment to the next you can't hear any change, but you're certainly conscious that this music that you were hearing at one minute in, by the time you're 30 minutes in, it's become really quite different, and it's so minimal. And it's really oddly compelling. I mean, it's really it's really gripping, actually, and it's very very melancholy and quite m- moving. And by by the time you get to 50 minutes, it's barely it barely exists at all. And I found it really uh, just. I mean, I, I guess I was getting it more and more into that kind of uh, I don't know what you'd call it, sort of a- ambient stuff, anyway. And so I liked, th- I liked that because it had a sort of narrative, a weird narrative propulsion to it. And then um, the same person who recommended that to me, I then got into more sort of extreme minimalism. Uh, so I, I, um, uh, then I was drawn to, by the, the same friend recommended that I listen to uh, Eliane Radique. And that is music that is just barely even music. It's almost nothing. Um, but it has this strange sort of power. I mean it becomes really compelling even though it's just it's just a kind of oscillating wave, you know. Um yeah, so I, I I I like I like that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you know, I went to a Bill Frizzell gig the other day in Los Angeles, and of course he's great, Bill Frizzell but it's God, I found myself rather vulgarly longing for a power cord, you know, kerrang, you know, which of course Frizzell is capable of doing but would never deign to do. Um, so, yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, I have one from the ether. It should be quick. From Patrick Feely, an instant opinion on Anthony Pohl, please.
4: Well, um, I don't, I mean, it, there's, a, there's a section on Anthony Pohl. In the book, and it's not a critical consideration of Anthony Pole, but just briefly. You know, I, a few years ago, actually, due to our, the lobbying of our mutual friend John Lanchester, I oh, yeah, you know, yeah. started reading Anthony Pole, and uh, you know, I read five volumes without any pleasure at all, and with a strong conviction that it was kind of really, really, pretty much without any value, and. Then I gave up, and my father in law said, Oh, well, what a shame you didn't stick with it, because it really gets going in volume <laughs> six. But, you know, I'd given it a thousand pages. Anyway, and then what happened next? Then there was that epic Perry Anderson uh, two parter in the LRB saying how great it was, sort of, you know. And then, with the lockdown where we're all looking for long absorbing books, I thought I'll give it another go. And that time I only lasted up to volume three. It seemed to have actually gone down further in my estimate. But I know Anthony Pohl has uh, has his uh, admirers. And there's a little nice little story in the book. You know, I think this is a story you've maybe heard before that he was so snooty, Anthony Pohl, that during one freezing cold winter when the pipes were burst at his house. You know, so he's really in dire need of the plumber to come round. The plumber comes round and asks if, uh, if this is, if this is Mr. Powell's house. And so Anthony Powell, of course, says, "No, there's no one of that name here." <laughs> sort of rather have the house flood than to answer to the name of Powell. Has anyone here actually read the whole of the Dance, the Music of Time? Just four. Yeah, I mean it. Yeah, yeah. And the man behind you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm going to sort of read it again. i like, to say, you're making Yeah, it's... Um, okay, that's your, uh, it Yes, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, one so of the it? things you talk
0: about is bailing on things, though, isn't it? Is that something yes, you've got more right. kind of frank about?
4: Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, of course, one never knows. You know, maybe if I just stuck... You know, you never know if that conversion is going to occur. but so you you were enjoying it from um, yeah. uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, so I yeah. Think if you didn't like Bible, I wouldn't have come back so yeah, no, well that right <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh, it's yeah i just didn't get it at all but I, I think that's a that period i mean i think from let's say from say 1930 to 1970 i think that's a period of english literature which is just so Right for critical reconsideration and um you know this is real uh i mean this is my being the i mean this is belated zeal of the convert now but you know if when 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 that when that happens i reckon elizabeth taylor whose reputation is kind of going up she is going to emerge as just such a colossally important writer and, you know All I'm doing now is saying what everybody since Kingsley Amis, in whatever year it was, has been saying, that she's so, so, so fantastic. And she's a very interesting case there that these, you know... Yeah, it's just... I mean, on the one hand, I feel she's... Her books have been in print for all these years. That's no mean achievement. But the there's. I, I think it's an interesting thing generally between the way a writer is perceived... And I think she's perceived partly because of the covers. We've probably got the one here, you know, as I don't know, nice, nice middle brow lady novelist, you know. And you know, it's uh, you know, and then you read her, and you realize, know, oh my God, she is just far out and wonderful and so great. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, that's. I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a there's a a big task of critical re-evaluation
1: follow up on that because I think there. Yeah. sorry yeah. yeah there's something y- you were talking about you know last and um, uh, latest and then mm. first and I do wonder you know um, in your I haven't read your b- latest book but I wondered you know where you felt the whole you mentioned Elizabeth Taylor who I do think is a p- most fantastic writer mm. but a lot of women don't get the that overview you know it's not last or latest and you know they're greatly overlooked and I just ah. wondered you know often first is come very late in their lives and they've been going a long time and where yeah. you stood in relation to that
4: uh, I'm so sorry I don't quite understand the well, question it was just
1: that sort of positioning yourself in terms of the way that you think about you know whether you make any specifics about you know men who we we know of their careers and their mm-hmm. contribution, whereas we tend to come to women much later and yeah, um, so it's that last first thing and I think women get very overlooked. Yeah,
4: well I guess the the classic example of that and I mentioned her a bit and discuss her a bit in the book would be uh, Jean Rhys, you know, and I think those first four novels that came out in the thirties, they were so. They were so uh, both ahead of their time and so not dependent on what had gone before, that it was difficult to sort of process them. And then, of course, you know, famously, she gets, uh, you know, well, everyone. I mean, they it's assumed that she's dead, really, when they do that radio adaptation of whichever one it was after leaving Mr. Mackenzie. And then it turns out she's alive and she's still writing. And then eventually, she gets this belated acclaim on the basis of wide Sargasso Sea. I mean, she's an extreme example of, uh, of, of, of that, I think. Um, and there's, yeah, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, something similar is happening in America with Eve Babbitt, I guess, you know, who sort of completely disappeared and then uh, has been sort of rehabil- rehabilitated somewhat, yeah.
0: Um, you mentioned tonight that you've, um, <coughs> Kind of abandon the distinction between serious and and funny, and mm. I think I heard you mention before that you'd uh, previously abandoned the kind of fiction non fiction oh, distinction. Yeah. And are they are those two things connected?
4: Oh, uh, I see. So this is the I'm the uh, I'm the abandoner of distinctions. um <laughs> I wonder. Maybe maybe they are actually yes. um And you know I guess uh, you know stupidly uh in an edition of White Sands I. Attributed this line, you know, the opposite of uh, the opposite of funny is not serious. The opposite of funny is not funny. I attributed that to David Sedaris, who I think is, you know, an incredible writer. But it was actually G. K. Chesterton who who said that. And um, then fiction, non-fiction. It's funny. I'm sort of oscillating. I mean, because of there's because there's so much around of this kind of genre-defying stuff of mixing stuff up. I've I'm sort of perversely coming back round to sort of thinking, well, two things. One, I really like nothing more in my reading now than just being immersed in a sort of, you know, proper old-style uh, narrative for a novel. Partly because I had this huge experience of, uh, you know, one of the greatest experiences of my life, reading, um, you know, a *Lonesome Dove* by Larry McMurtry. Wow, what a book that is! And I realized then just how much I like that thoroughly traditional experience of immersion in a world that uh, 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 fiction gives you. And also I've really just gone so, I've spent so much time reading straight down the line, non-fiction, Anthony Beaver style, uh, you know, military history, which I spend, I'm very happy to say I spend an increasing amount of my time reading, even though my ability to retain what i'm reading is close to zero actually i mean really yeah um so yeah i think uh, yeah so uh, yeah i mean yeah i don't i i let's put it like this i don't spend a lot of time reading the kind of books that i write um although i feel uh uh, I, feel a gr- I feel at some level that maybe, you know, I don't know what our, the difference in our age is, but, you know, Im- Emmanuel Carrere, who's, you know, uh, I feel that, God, he and I were, you know, if it weren't for Brexit, we could be sort of married, I feel, at, su- at some level. There's a real affinity there. And, you know, he's even got a his new book, is even called Yoga, where I got there first with a longer title. <laughs> Think. yes he does doesn't he and you know yes he done do you know I'd be lying to you if I said that wasn't a source of some considerable satisfaction to me when he <laughs> describes me as a writer he loves yeah god I really liked that yeah yeah never thought much of his books up until that <laughs> point <laughs> Um,
2: I don't think I've really read anything you've written about politics, but I wondered Mm. what you thought about the concept of lateness in relation to politicians, for example, Joe
4: Biden. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I don't have any thoughts on that. But, um, you know, there was a time um, when, you know, politicians were so old, you know, and you know, those First World War generals, you know, they're just so ancient. And then some of them, you know, they had to then, you know, they were already old and they had to come back as sort of, you know, Pitan or however old he was in the Second World War. You know, just really ancient people. And of course now, um, yeah, we're re- there was a time when Biden wouldn't have seemed particularly old. You'd have felt that he'd just, you know, achieved the kind of necessary... Level of years for first, but now, of course, everything is you know, that it's uh, you know, yeah, it's everything has become so so much younger, and uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, an extraordinary thing that I'm sort of I think I'm older than Barack Obama, you know, but what has he ever done, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, I don't know, um, yeah. Uh, what exactly is wrong with earnestness? What's wrong with what? Earnestness. Oh um, well, it's—I it, uh, I can only say that when I've ever been, until I read that line of Nietzsche's, I didn't know, and then I realized that uh, whenever I'm in the uh, in on the receiving end of somebody's earnestness, I'm never very interested. That that would be all. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. There's that hand that we saw right at the back. Oh, sorry.
3: Um, have you seen the new Top Gun? And how do you feel about that as a, a a late or last? We know you're you're a fan of aircraft and aircraft carriers. Oh, okay.
4: Yeah. Well, I do remember loving um, Top Gun one. And. Um, yeah, will I go to see it? I mean, probably not. Uh, I think, um, or maybe I will. I don't know really. It's uh, is it is it going to be all? It depends actually. If if it's a lot of CGI, uh, uh, then I wouldn't. But if it turns out it's lots of actual filming of sort of actual flying, then then I might. But I don't know. You know, I'm I'm more into the kind of. You know, I'm, I'm keener to see the, the, you know, I mean, so I know that's a thriller, but for me a really, a really thrilling film was Kelly Reichardt's uh, First Cow, you know. That's my idea of some thrilling uh, cinema. I'm not really into that, that other stuff, so. No, it's just, it's just, yeah, yeah, I think I probably wouldn't, yeah. With, but the microphone is necessary for even an observation. <laughs>
2: Well, there's a review of the new Top Gun that quotes you. Oh, is there? It says, that, <laughs> yeah, it says that you met just one person on the aircraft carrier who wasn't there because of Top Gun.
4: Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, that's right. All, yeah, so when I spent, yeah, that well-remembered. that um, uh, So when I spent this time on the aircraft carrier, an experience I loved, uh, they all... All the pilots all uh, they were there, they'd become pilots because of Top Gun. And I can't remember. Was it the woman who she was the only one who uh, wasn't there because of Tom Cruise? I think it was her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they all say I mean, it's the, the pilots all said that, you know, actually, it's much more it's so technologically advanced, it's more like, they say, playing a video game than flying a, flying a, a, a plane. But yeah, I mean, just to go back to that, they so they're all they've all absorbed the ethos of Top Gun, of you know, of, uh, of the right stuff, if you like, you know. But I always remember talking, and you know, it's cool that it's because there's there's quite a few uh, female pilots, and the the men though, they're all really, you know, they're really just so, you know, they've all the they're just yeah they're. Top Gun kind of guys, you know. And one of them was saying that, you know, it's so, even with all the technological help, he said landing on a carrier, when it's daylight and it's flat as a pancake, that's pretty straightforward, but he said at night, when it's pitching up and down like that, he said sometimes he would land, you know, and the the, the the he'd catch the arresting wire, and it would come to a stop, and he said he'd just be there, Absolutely drenched in sweat because of just the terror of what he was doing, because it's so dangerous
3: still. So, you know. Thank you you very much, Jeff Dyer and Mark Ford. Thank you, Mark. Cheers, Um, Jeff. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.